Okay, we're we're going to go ahead and start, and uh, we'll pause here for a moment of prayer, and then we'll pick up where we left off last week. So let's uh, pause here for prayer. Let's see, uh, Bob, would you read us a prayer? Do you have any thoughts? Thank the Lord for you. Thank the all that you do for us. Thank the Lord for providing the provision of this uh, building that we have to look into your word, Lord. Please uh, be with Bob and keep. Goes through the Psalms, give them clarity. Please uh, keep us attentive that we'll be taking what we hear. We'll be praying for Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, you do have a good first name. <laughs> now, is your favorite movie, What About Bob? Yeah. Oh, that was <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got the DVD. I don't have <laughs> No, my, I'm a Robert Vance Jr., my dad was senior. So he bought, my name is Robert Vance Jr. So he, when he was alive, he got Bagger Vance because of the middle name Vance. His favorite movie, though, was What About Bob? Go figure. So, anyway. Well, let's pick up where we left off last week. We left off on page 28. Let me just briefly review. We're looking at Psalm 137, and that's what we call an imprecatory psalm. An imprecation is a praying of judgment. For example, I might say, May God cut off my hand if I vote again <laughs> for, and you plug it in. That's a, that's a self-implication. Uh, when we pray for judgment on somebody, that's an implication. So anytime there's a prayer of judgment, that's called an implication. We're looking at this select group of psalms. They're lament psalms, but they're called imprecatory psalms. Because some of the things we don't want to hear about are expressed in the psalms. So we started looking at the imprecatory psalms last week. We looked at page 27. We looked at page 28 in part. We looked at the five purposes for the imprecatory psalms. A key item was the theological basis for the imprecatory psalms. Did you remember in the one, two, third paragraph from the end. The basis for these psalms is Genesis 12, verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. So I understand that the implications in the Bible are based upon, in general, on that verse. There's probably a few exceptions to that, but generally... That is the verse where God says in the Old Testament, if anybody messes with Abram, he's going to be cursed. So that is our basis. Now, to be sure, those things ebb and flow correlated with Israel's disobedience. So we will see times, like Psalm 137, they had been taken into captivity. Now, when the nation, uh, you know, at least the key people in the nation 
when they repent, God spared them. And he will do that when they're in Babylon in captivity. And he does that uh, pretty much throughout the Old Testament era. Uh, they have a brief glimpse of getting right with God with Christ. But they don't. So right now I would understand that Israel is under a state of judgment. They're unbelievers. Uh, now I think as I told you last week, if I was a betting man, and I'm not, so I'll bet Ken Brown's money. <laughs> but I don't think he's very rich. But You know, in the end, Israel's going to be standing. God may remove him out of the land again, but he's going to keep his remnant from that nation so that at the end of the tribulation, Israel will look at the one they've cursed and say, blessed is he. Now, we don't see that yet. So, you know, and I was, you know, I've been distressed by uh, President Obama, the way they've uh, been slapping Israel around. And I think it goes either way in some cases, so don't misunderstand me. But it does seem like he, he sold to the Jewish people living in our country. He promised them everything. They of all people should have known a liar when they see him. I mean, his track record was clear. So, I think I might have mentioned this, but my youngest son, he works for Pricewaterhouse and Cooper. He works with a lot of Jewish people. He's uh, now he's he's not a partner yet, but he's pretty close. So he's working with the Hoy. I mean, not the Hoy Poloi. These are the big money rollers. And so there's a lot of Jews there. I mean, go figure. But uh, most of them voted for Obama. But, you know, they curse him today. Because they feel he's selling their group out. And, you know, he is. So, but I'm not one of those who think we have to go on a hunt where we think if we support Israel, God's going to bless us. Well, that's not going to happen because we're already under state of condemnation. Um, how do I know that? Look what's happened to our nation in 20 years. If I understand scripture right, we are in their name under a state of condemnation. We've sold our souls to humanism and evolution. With that comes the judgment of God. Now, thank God he's, he's got a good group of elect people in the United States. So, you know, we have a lot of Christians, but you know, right now I think China might have more than we do. So, I mean, so I'm not sure that all is well with our souls. But nevertheless, God still saves out his elect. That's our hope. So we cling to that uh, with the expectation that we will be in that millennial kingdom. But friends, we need to realize Israel's going to be there, and they will be the nation. So they may be in unbelief now, but God will work so that they will eventually be saved in the tribulation. So anyway, I've seen a lot of people take this Genesis 12, 3, and they just blow it all over the place that we've got to keep up and take care of Israel. I guess my tact is I know they're going to be there in the end, I think we need to be loyal to the alliances we've made with Israel. 
like we would with anybody else. So that's how I think we should treat them, according to what our alliances are. And I think we do have some alliances with Israel. The only thing I regret is that we don't bring them in to help us with uh, airline security. They are the best in the world. I would rather have that than see my wife go through a scanner, quite frankly. And I would think most of you do too. I mean, there are other ways, but this is the American way. It's the way of humanism. Evolution lays the foundation. We don't have to worry about an accountability to God. So evolution throws off the yoke of accountability to God. And it goes hand in hand with humanism, friends. So the best thing for us to do is to pray that God continues to uh, save out his people here. And I would say, too, is I think God's people need to have some backbone. They need to look, I mean, to me, politics, I mean, you can't mix the church with religion. Baptists aren't about that. However, I know it's Pastor Dorn. He doesn't tell you who to vote for, however, in the last 12 years, he preaches much more strongly. Here's what the issues are. And you need to vote right. And I think that's the way to go. Now, I don't know. I think Ken would probably do the same thing. Because I didn't he want to be a politician when he was younger? He did want to be. Yeah, he did. So, I'm sure you get the same thing. (laughs) But I think that's right. If we're going to do anything to to help our nation, we we have to put our faith into practice. And Christians have been too passive on this stuff. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. So, anyway, I just got off on a little bit of politics there, but... uh, Thank you, Dr. News on the, on the Inner City website, a real good one by Pastor Brown, and there's a good one on our website um, by Ken. Yeah, well, I'm sure Ken would. I mean, I know him real I well. Yeah, I know. I've been friends with Ken for ever since he was in seminary. I've been eating lunch with him every Thursday with a few other, another pastor and Dr. Combs. So, I, I mean, I know where he is. <laughs> So, you know, to me, I think that's right. And I think our types of churches, we need to be a little bit more active than things. So, anyway, enough of that. So, going back to my original point is about Genesis 12, 3. Some will abuse it. I don't, I think the verse tells us Israel will be there in the kingdom. I don't think today that I want to pray that against all the foes of Israel. It seems to me that they are under a state of condemnation right now. Until God removes that blindness, it's there. So I don't think we get any extra special blessings out of helping Israel. I think the only blessing we get is that we, uh, we're loyal to our alliances. So this verse won't work in those areas. Well, so that's the basis. Now, tonight we want to look at the motives of the biblical writers who prayed for divine curses on Israel's enemies. So we want to look, what are the motives for this? Well, do the Old Testament writers reflect their motives? Absolutely. And I think we can see four of their motives. Now, we need to be very careful when we judge people's motives. 
I try to avoid it. But there, when people can continue certain patterns of living, often you can see their motives. But we need to be very careful on that. But I do think they become a parent. I mean, you know, I had kids in high school. Uh, I mean, they could cry crocodile tears when they were younger. <coughs> and we thought all was well with their soul. They were deceivers. <laughs> I mean, uh, it took time to find out what they were. You know, I've, never, the, I've learned more about my children when they got married. Because my youngest son was best man for his older brother, and Josh's older brother was Bob was his best man. So they were telling some good stories. You'd be surprised what you can get away with at Bob Jones University. I I was surprised. I was surprised at what they got away with in our home. You know, when Josh was in seventh grade, we put him in a separate room. He and his brother were always fighting, so we thought, you know, in this case, divorce was allowable. <laughs> so we put Joshua downstairs. And so Bob came down there, and Joshua said, uh, no trespassing. <laughs> and he had a sign. I didn't know it, but he put up a sign, no trespassing. So Bob came in, because he's bigger than him. <laughs> and he said, get out of here. It's illegal to trespass. I'm going to call a lawyer. <laughs> I, I didn't know this. <laughs> so Bob walks out and Joshua picks up a dart and sticks him right in the back end with it. <laughs> so can, can boys be kind of tough and rugged? Absolutely. Um, now, Bob, I don't want to make him sound like he's a saint because I remember when Joshua had a broken wrist. Joshua was giving him problems and he just beat him up and just belting him. Like he was crazy. Now I thought Joshua had it coming. So I didn't spank either of them. But that's the depravity that's expressed. Well, I was pretty clear I could draw some items about their motives because it was a habit of behavior. Well, that's the way we can do it. Now the good thing about the Word of God, it is inspired and it is inerrant. So when God says He knows somebody's motives, can I say, God does speak ex cathedra and he's not the Pope? When God speaks, everybody should listen. So, he does identify four motives here. We want to take a look at that. Let's look at the first one. David does not pray that he would be the instrument of judgment on his enemies. Very important. He's not praying that he would be the instrument of judgment on his enemies. David's prayer was for the Lord to avenge his people. So usually when I'm express venting myself, I'm looking to get even because of my vested self-interest. I think most of, most people are like me. David's not like that. At least in his prayers, he doesn't reflect that. Secondly, there is a difference between vindication and vindictiveness. The biblical writers had a passion for judgment and not for their own sin-tainted revenge. I suspect when my uh, youngest son stuck his brother in the back end with that dart, uh, that 
that was tainted with his sin-laced deed. He was looking to get revenge. That wasn't good. And my other son did the same thing. Generally, the one good thing is that both my sons, they may have verbally said stuff that was bad to their sister, but they didn't beat her up, which is good. So they took it out on each other. <laughs> well, may I say, I've seen that sin-tainted revenge many times. I've seen it with preachers. And may I say, my wife's seen it with me, although she was wrong. She called it road rage. <laughs> Usually when that, when that young blonde cuts me off, I'm ticked. Because <laughs> she's on the cell phone. However, I've noticed there's gals with various shades of hair now on the cell phone. I've been cut off by an old woman before. She had to be 80. <laughs> I mean, that's, so, so I get ticked. So I think my wife's right in most cases, not all cases. I think there is a God-driven world range. I think I've identified it, but she hasn't. So she just thinks I'm a sinner with that. Well, perhaps, just as long as she doesn't do the same thing. So that's what I mean by a sin-tainted revenge. Also, thirdly, on page 29, a proper understanding of the Davidic kingship helps us to see something of the disposition of the one invoking God's judgment. The Israelite king was God's chosen representative. David had a great respect for the anointed king and refused to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Remember Saul? David had him trapped in the cave and he cut off a portion of his garment, David could have defended himself. But he didn't. Because he respected him as God's anointed king. For David to have done so would have been not only treason, but also utter sacrilege and disregard for the theocratic office. When the office of the king was conferred on David, he then regarded himself as everything that concerned him in light of his official status, his relationship to God, and what we call the theocratic government. What I mean by that, Israel's government. God, God was the ruler. In that case, David was speaking, may I say in some sense, with the real seat of authority. Now I know, uh, I've heard some preachers claim this, that's not right. Uh, I've heard leaders of nations claim it. That's not right. Friends, there's only one King Jesus. He's sitting on that heavenly throne, waiting to come back and take up his rightful position on the Davidic throne, which will be in the kingdom. So, to me, there's only one person who has this type of status. Now, the Israelite kings, at least for Judah, they had that status. But when Christ came, he fulfilled all that. There's nobody that will replace him. So I don't think anybody has this type of authority today. I don't even think the Pope has it. So, I mean, why would I think some human leader would have it? So, to me, I've, I've heard this concept of Jews. 
but we need to keep it in the Old Testament context that related to the kings of Judah, it, kings of Judah and Israel initially, and then when they split, it, uh, the Davidic line went through the nation of Judah. That was temporarily set aside for 400 years in what we call the intertestamental period. But when Christ came, he was, can I say, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? So he's the only person that has that type of authority. So I would not apply this just freely. It's only the Christ. And now we, we wait for King Jesus to come back and to establish his government. May I say the only type of good government is a dictatorship? But you've got to have the right tater. And it's got to be King Jesus because everybody else is marred by their depravity. <laughs> That's the scary part. So, you know, a minute job or... Uh, who was that leader that we took care of in Iraq? Saddam Hussein? He thought he was the great king. Well, we did bring him down. So, you're probably not as political as I am, but I rejoice when they got him. I love those signs in Minnesota. It's George Bush with a smiling face, waving, saying, Miss me yet? Absolutely. But I don't think he had that type of power. I don't think Ronald Reagan had that type of power. We're democracy. So, to me, I don't know that we fully understand that. So when I say I think a dictatorship's right, I'm thinking of the dictatorship of Christ as the dictator. Nobody else. I think democracies protect against abuses of dictatorships in the meantime. But if you really want to get something done, have a dictator. You don't have to go through the bureaucracies and things like that. So, I think democracies are the best way to guard against totalitarian rulers because they have depravity. So, to me, I think democracy for our era is right. Uh, I don't know that they have to do it in the Middle East. They're fighting it. They want the Sharia law and you know, maybe Saddam, maybe we've been better off to leave him in power. I mean, I don't, you know, sometimes I wonder. Because <laughs> that is the one thing that hurt George W. in the last four years. I, uh, I would have preferred for us to stay out of Iraq, but that's me. But once we were there, I was committed to it. So, to me, we protect against dictatorships today through democracies through governments where there's accountability. But in the end, it's going to be about a dictator. And it'll be Christ ruling and reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. So this is all being funneled down. It comes from David, and it'll end up with Christ. In fact, look for a moment at Psalm 2. We're looking at the Psalms that... I want you to see the close connection between God and the king. Look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Now, during David's... By the way, Acts 4.25 tells us that the Holy Spirit spoke through David. And it quotes this psalm. 
So I'm convinced because of the Acts passage, David's the author. So here's David writing it. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, my Bible has anointed one capitalized. I think that's because they're looking ultimately at Christ. I'm not, I don't think in the initial writing David was thinking only about Jesus. I think he, he's thinking about himself and his dynasty of kings. Look how the psalm develops. These nations who were vassals uh, to King David in this moment of uh, rebellion, they say, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. <coughs> Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Then the king says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. God said to me, You are my son. I take it that the you here is the author who began in verse 1. So I think David is talking about himself. Now, I will say, I think ultimately this will be fulfilled in Christ, but I want us to see the connection. So here he says, You are my son, today I have become your father. If we looked at 2 Samuel 7.14, God says he would be a father to Solomon, and Solomon would be his son. However, hold your finger here, let's flip over to Psalm 89. What do they mean when they're talking about them? Well, here's how I think the Messianic connection comes in. Psalm 89 is looking back to the days of uh, David and shortly thereafter. And things are not going as well as they had hoped for. So this is what we call a royal psalm. Notice verse 3, he says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your line forever. Did you notice that? That's his ruling line. It's established forever. And make your throne firm through all generations. Um, we could go on more, but let's just drop down to verse 19. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant with my sacred oil I have anointed him. This goes to the ritual where he was anointed with oil when he was uh, pronounced to be king. Notice he continues, my hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. It goes on. Drop down to verse 25. I will set his hand over the sea. I think God here is thinking of David and his line of kings. This is, has not happened yet. And it hasn't happened yet either. But he says his right hand over the rivers. 
key. Now, notice here he's referring to David. He's mentioned him. He will call out to me, you are my father. My God, the rock, my savior. I will also appoint him my firstborn. So the firstborn is a son. Unfortunately, daughters didn't get that right. So David's his son, his firstborn, and God's the father. So we have that father-son terminology. It's not Trinitarian talk. This is Davidic covenant talk. So notice he continues on. I will maintain my love to him, to David, forever. And my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever. His throne as long as the heavens endure. So it's clear here he's talking about David. And notice what he says. He's going to establish his line forever. So most Old Testament theologians understand that with David's Davidic line, they were specially set apart to God and they had this special theocratic relationship with the Father. God describes it as Father the Son, but that's a metaphor. It means He is uh, God the Father and He has a special relationship with the Davidic King. Now, how do these things connect with the New Testament? Well, I think Psalm 89 gives us an answer, doesn't it? He establishes a line, his line forever. So we see that that culminates with Jesus Christ. The book of Matthew is about Jesus offering the kingdom to the Jews. They reject it. The nation set aside. King Jesus tells us at the end of Matthew, we're to go out and preach the gospel and build churches. But he's coming again. So, I understand that you have a line of kings that culminates in Jesus. I think Psalm 2, if we go back there for a minute, David's talking about himself, in my understanding. He's starting the Davidic dynasty. And then this is picked up in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and applied to Christ. May I say it's rightly applied to Christ? This thing about his kingdom being to the ends of the earth, David never fully realized that. But with his son, he will fully realize it. But he hasn't yet. So Jesus initially had to come, make atonement for his people, and uh, then set up his citizenry for the kingdom. That's what he's doing with you and I. We are made citizens of the kingdom. Now, we're not in the kingdom. Oh, if we are, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> but we do see something of what the uh, millennial kingdom will be like. We will have the gift of the Spirit. The graces we see now as believers will be manifest in the kingdom. We just don't see the national things that we want to see. So Detroit will not be the capital of the world. In the Old Testament, it will be Jerusalem. In fact, that's the whole, verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, Jerusalem, my holy hill. You are my son. Today I become your father. Well, we may have more to say about this later, but I think the point is, you can see what the drift here. Back in verse 2, 
there's a connection between the king on the throne in Jerusalem at this point and God. When these people are fighting, they fight against the Lord and against his king. So there is a dynamic connection between David and God. Uh, now, I think what only eight of the kings in the Vedic line were godly people. Sometimes you wonder about them, but God does pronounce that they were his, uh, that, that they were believers in Old Testament ways. He expresses that. But most of the kings were not good. So I don't expect to see them in heaven. But I do think God was keeping his line of kings intact that had to come through David. So now that's very significant for Bible prophecy. But this is not a class on Bible prophecy. So afterwards, Ron Biggs is going to tell you everything about it. <laughs> and Ed Martin's going to assist. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're in inner city. Dr. Rice was preaching on Acts, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did he get, how far did he get in Acts? He never finished it. How many years now? About seven years, wasn't it? I think it's about seven years. Yeah. I think he was yeah, only through chapter about seven. Three quarters of the way through. Right. Well, I just remember that sermon on love. You're not a three. You're not a two. You're not a one. You're a zero. You rascal, you! I knew he had somebody in mind in the congregation. <laughs> That's what I call pathetic confrontation. <laughs> Well, whatever. Dr. Rice was in many ways very memorable and he laid a great foundation in Inner City Baptist Church. We are what we are, largely because of Dr. Rice. So, you know, and everybody had a I had a healthy fear of him. I remember I replaced somebody that did not have a very good relationship with Doctor Rice and I said, Well, I'm not gonna mess with him. <laughs> But even Dr. Rice did not have the authority that King Jesus has. Only Jesus has that authority. And no pastor has that authority. Though from time to time you hear people like Jack Howells, how he used to claim that, and um, people in that Southwide Baptist Fellowship, some of them have been busted for their sexual immorality, uh, perversions of children, See, what happens when somebody gets to the top and they have no accountability, then it's, what is it, Katie bar the doors? That's just not right. So that is the problem. So we have to be careful in that. So don't get our hopes disappointed because we see some pastor fall. Well, friends, he was never the king to start with. And so uh, Baptist churches are... Now, somewhat democratic. So ultimately, there is a congregation that uh, they can be called account to. So that's the great thing about being a Baptist. We can vote the pastor out if we don't like him. So um, I think there is a check and balance. I'm not sure when you get to the Highland Park Baptist Churches, Tennessee Temple, uh, Jack House with his with his ministry, he had thousands there. It's, you know, that's just unhealthy. He had nobody that he gave an account for. Well, that's dangerous when you're dealing with depraved people. Even if you're Christian, we still are marred by our depravity. So, 
David was still marred by his depravity, <laughs> but yet he had absolute power. So even he was not the best of, I mean, he's the best of what we see in the earthly realm. But he wasn't free from his depravity. So all these, I think, to me, anticipate Jesus Christ. So he's established his down payment with his death and resurrection, and now he's just waiting to call out his citizens. And I think that's imminent. That could be tonight. Uh, it may not be. I thought the same thing about ten years ago. I mean, I think it all the time. We just don't know when. So it could be another thousand years, but friends, it could happen even tonight. And we always need to be reminded that that could happen. And that would get us out of some of our political messes. We wouldn't be in. So that's a key psalm because it tells us the type of relationship that David had with God. He, when you messed with King David, you were messing with God. So that's, that's a very strong passage. Well, let's go back to uh, what we were looking at with this third motive. I'm trying to establish the king, that the king of the Jewish nation was the theocratic head. And my point was just to look back at Psalm 2 because it reflects that. There are passages in the historical books that we could go to, but I wanted to keep our focus in the Psalms. So, David saw attacks against himself as attacks on the name of the Lord. He thus, prayed, he thus prayed for the destruction of the wicked, not out of personal revenge, but out of zeal for his God and his kingdom. God was the one who set up that king with the authority. And so David saw that as an attack on God. So when he prays the imprecatory psalms, uh, I do understand that sometimes he's praying because he's been given this type of authority by the Lord himself. And God's the one who said he had the authority. So I think that's a right implication. Uh, generally speaking, I mean, David was marred by moments of depravity. And so, like what happened with Joab, that was sin. But I would say in most of his military campaigns, he was doing it with the blessing of heaven. So, um, to me, I think overall, David was a very honorable man. But even honorable men still have their moments. And he did. Well, so those are the first three motives. Then notice the fourth motive. The implications in Psalms reflect how an Old Testament believer hates sin and wickedness and how they love the justice of God as reflected in the Old Testament. Because of this, the Psalms saw the heinous nature of any violation of God's moral will. So notice my point with this motive. The Old Testament believer hated sin and they loved the justice of God. Um, seems to me that we can understand that because I think we, in the main, hate sin. We love justice. Friends, the justice I love is the justice that Christ showed when he died for my sins at the cross. 
See, judgment against your sin and my sin is demanded by an infinite God. The good thing for us is that Christ identified us with His atonement. So, God didn't just overlook our sins. God exacted full justice in the Son for our sins. So that was a very very important concept in the Reformation. See, the cross is about justice. So I love the justice of God. I love the justice that was shown at the cross because my sins were paid for. Your sins were paid for. So we love that justice. And we should. But see, God's going to exact judge justice out of everybody who's not a believer. God demands eternity in hell because God's infinite. So all sins are against an infinite God. And because they're against an infinite God, it requires an infinite punishment, even for one little act of sin. So I rejoice. That justice is still going to be executed. So we should rejoice with that type of justice. So when these types of psalms are prayed, we should recognize there is a legitimacy for it. Uh, can I say God takes, He will take pleasure in His execution of judgment on the lost? Now I don't think God's, uh, you know, masochistic, and I don't think He just. On the one hand, I don't think He rejoices. In one sense, He doesn't rejoice when a sinner dies. That's what Ezekiel says. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. However, friends, in His justice, He's got to have pleasure. Or He's an unhappy God. <laughs> and we'll be unhappy people. So it had to. You know, there's a very good passage in the Old Testament. Flip over to Deuteronomy 28. This reflects something about God's justice. Deuteronomy 28. I've had people offended when I say God has to be satisfied when people are being tried in eternal hell. He has to because He loves justice. He loves Himself. Look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 63. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number. This is Israel. Uh, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. I should do a double take on that. God is, on the one hand, pleased to prosper Israel. And yet, it also will please him to ruin and destroy them. You know, it's interesting here, this word for pleasure... That's the same word that's used in, what is it, Ezekiel 18, where God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So i got to put that in my theological pipe and smoke. <laughs> There's some serious thought there. God, on the one hand, says he was pleased to bless Israel, but he's also going to be pleased when he ruins and destroys them. I've got a passage in Ezekiel. I think it's 18, where it takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, which is it? 
Can I say God's infinitely complex? There is a sense. I believe that when the wicked perish, God takes no pleasure in it. But may I say, in His justice, He's got to be pleased. Because He's God. And He's got to love His justice. So for us, as God's people, we have to bring our thoughts in line with God. And, uh, you know, we need to hate sin. We need to love justice. Uh, we need to love the justice at the cross. Uh, I say we need to love to tell the people the story about Christ dying for him. Because that's where justice is satisfied. But it's all about justice. So, I use these two passages just as to support what I'm saying. The psalmist loved justice. And sometimes that justice may seem a little cruel to us, as it will in Psalm 137. So I'm setting you up so that you won't throw darts at me when I get to the final few verses in Psalm 137. They're hard ones. So, before I look at that, I do want to say... uh, in the New Testament, uh, how then can the New Testament believer pray the imprecatory psalms? May I say very cautiously, the imprecatory elements found in a psalm can help us move our petty sinfulness away from sin. God knows my emotional anger, and I must confess what is sinful as sin. The imprecatory elements help me question my motives in anger. Are my motives like David's motives? I must repent over my sinful anger and focus on God's justice. It is not my will, but God's will that must be done. The enemies of God's people will experience God's unmitigated wrath. But I must leave the issues of the time and the manner of justice in God's hands. Thus, the imprecatory psalms can help us to avoid being overcome by evil. May I say, we need to go one step further, though. You might want to add a verse here, Galatians 1.8. Let's flip over there. In my early uh, career as an Old Testament teacher, I used to say it's inappropriate for believers to pray imprecations against the enemies of God. I no longer say that. Not because I read the Psalms, it's because I read the New Testament. You look at Revelation, <laughs> yes. But look at this one that applies to us now and not the future. In Galatians 1, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Friends, that's an implication. Paul is pronouncing a judgment on him. He knows the word condemned, and he says eternally. So he's not talking about slapping your hands. This is an eternal condemnation. Now, I would say when I think about the imprecations, I try to use what I learned in the Psalms to guard my motives. I want to make sure my desires are in line with God's. 
By the way, I think there was one occasion where I, I thought my motives were aligned with God's. But then as I was beginning to think of it more, this person had vexed me years back. So I'm not sure that I was pure. So I had to retract my imprecation. <laughs> but Paul's speaking about something serious here. If somebody preaches another gospel, now what does Paul mean by the gospel? Well, sure, at the minimum, it's his death and resurrection. But may I say, friends, no better expression of the Gospels, the book of Romans, even Galatians, it says something quite a bit about sin. It says uh, something about Christ's death and resurrection. It says something about indwelling. It says something about the eternal spirit. Or I shouldn't say, I think the millennial kingdom in Romans 11. <coughs> but all these things are part of the <coughs> of Christ, his mission. So I think the gospel is more complex than just his death, burial, and resurrection. Now the reason why I say that, there's what we call easy believism today. You know, you can just pray a sinner's prayer and, and you're in. May I say that's that's a false gospel? There was a man at Dallas Seminary, Zane Hodges. He preached this polluted gospel all his life. Influenced friends of mine at Dallas. Uh, they went one way, some of these doctrines of grace. I went the other way. Now, I never prayed an imprecation on Zane Hodges. I don't, I think he was a believer. But if I'm convinced that somebody is using Christianity as a mockery, I have no problem with that. You know, I wonder about Joel Olstein. I think that's a false gospel he's preaching. Don't you? I mean, it's a health and wealth gospel. Friends, I'm not saying pray <laughs> a judgment, but if he moves to where he's in enemy status, then I would. I would pray for government leaders that way. I've been praying imprecatory psalms on Jennifer Granholm for years now. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> I just remember her in the dating game. Y'all didn't know she was on the dating game? No. Go to YouTube and put it in. Yeah, I mean, she's a nice looking governor. Whatever else I can say, she has inkler feet. <laughs> But uh, I like this politics much better. <laughs> but, uh, you know, somebody, like in India where they do have Hindus who really oppose the gospel, that's the place where I have no problem with them praying the judgment of God on somebody. They have been oppressed. I know in China people are oppressed. So I have no problems with them praying imprecation. But I don't want them to pray in precatory psalms everywhere. We need to be very careful. I mean, God does not know notice. He's taking stock of what we are. Now, we're not going to lose our salvation, I say. But, friends, I do want to have a, a good reward. I don't want to be ruling in a suburb of Detroit. I want to be in New York City. 
No, I'm not sure that the rewards are like that. But God will reward us for faithfulness. It's not what gets us into heaven or into kingdom. That's faith in Christ. But it does seem that as believers, what we do, don't do, and how we sin, I think to take it into account where our rewards are. But I would never say a believer loses salvation. Friends, I'm a Calvinist. I don't believe that. But I do think sometimes when people don't persevere, they may reflect that they were never saved to start with. And I do know some people that I really wonder about. People I've led to Christ. So we have to have that balance there. But, you know, people I've led to Christ that may turn away. I'm not praying imprecatory psalms on them. I don't know that they're preaching a false gospel. I think most people turned away because they've been burned in a church. They've been caught up in immoral relations. I don't think that they are purposely looking to reject Christ. I think other things. Now, if somebody really was, that's a different story. But I don't know that I can really judge that. But when I'm in India and I hear about these people who cut off a preacher's hands, I could pray some serious imprecatory psalms if that was my friend. So there are people who hinder the gospel. I don't think in our country we have people, you know, most political leaders are not looking to actively thwart churches. I sometimes wonder. But I don't think that's their immediate agenda. However, it was, I have a praying record for it all. So these are still good for Christians. That's all I'm saying. Well, let's take a look then at this one that's... Uh, that I don't, you may not like. It's a tough one. So let's look at the literary features found in Psalm 137. This uh, psalm is a national lament. Um, it contains an imprecation in verses 7 to 9. Probably one of the most strenuous laments in the Old Testament. Unlike most lament psalms, Psalm 137 does not contain an initial direct address to God. The direct address is not given until verse 7. Furthermore, we do not have an explicit predication of trust in this psalm. Though it may be inferred by the nature of this being a prayer that is consistent with earlier Old Testament revelation. So let's look at this. Notice the first four verses in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. So this is that Israel population that's been deported from Jerusalem, from Judah. They've been taken to Babylon. So this psalmist is saying, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. So 
How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Notice the lament there. He's mourning their pitiful state. They're in Babylon. They've hung up their hearts. They're not in Jerusalem. And now their tormentors, their captors are saying, pick up those electric guitars and let's, let's start singing here some songs of joy. If you can do that on electric guitar, I think you can. But um, So these were people that were making sport of Israel. Notice then the verses 5 and 6. Notice this vow to praise Jerusalem. Notice it says here, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. Now notice when he says, may my, may my right hand forget its skill, that's a self-imprecation. He's invoking something bad on his right hand. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So he also prays another self-imprecation on his tongue. So that's what we call a self-imprecation because he's praying it on a bodily part. So uh, that's a pretty strong prayer. Uh, notice the appeal in the first part of verse 7. He says, Remember, O Lord. Now notice the prayer request is not a positive one. Notice it's an imprecation. The appeal, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Uh, that's where Sodom Hussein was. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now that's hard stuff. Now uh, I don't think it's, it's. I don't think I could go that far. But I don't understand fully what happened to the nation Jerusalem. You know. By the way, when they're taken captive, one of the things we forget about warfare. This involved pillaging. Uh, rape of their women, uh, abuse of their children. Friends, war is Hades. I didn't want to say the other word. It just doesn't sound good. It's in the King James, but I'll say Hades. I think that's a nasty. <laughs> but I don't think we really fully understand the ravages of war. The people of Israel did. So that's a terrible thing when you think about it. So, is the psalmist doing this just for revenge sake? No, I don't think so. I think he's saying, get rid of the nation of Babylon completely so they won't raise up people that will do the same. They would have done it. We might not have some of our problems. So they didn't. So that's a hard one. And why he goes to the point of specifying the children? I would just pray more generically. Completely eliminate the nation. This sounds very vindictive. 
But I have to say, I don't think the psalmist was viewing it vindictively. I think he's seen how bad the people of God have been judged and abused. And so he's saying, get rid of the Babylonians so we never have to deal with this again. Because when you do have children, and you keep the mothers around, they may inculcate those values that drove their society. So you just get rid of them. But I would never pray that prayer, may I say in closing, my wife would wash my mouth out with soap. So I would never pray that. My middle son might try to cut it out. So I wouldn't do it. So anyway, that's the imprecation. It's very strong. I understand that this is driven from the context of Genesis 12. Three. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. And all he's doing is articulating it specifically. So don't be too hard on him. We haven't walked in his sandals. So it's in the Bible, and I would say at that point it is legitimate. Okay, now any questions on that? Hard stuff. Yes, Kim? Back to um, Deuteronomy 63. Uh-huh. Um, just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. Well, if you go over to Deuteronomy 29, mm-hmm. 28. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. Mm-hmm. 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Mm-hmm. Is that suggesting that, I mean, would that be part of the secret things? Because, you you know, you go right, into, right. God takes no... Pleasure is the destruction of the wicked. Right. So how do you line those up? Well, I don't know that we have to line them up. God's, I have to understand that God's a complex being. And on the one hand, he's not taking pleasure with their destruction. But on the other hand, he is satisfied to destroy them. Uh, now, what was the specific verse you're referring to? Well, the secret thing. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, no, I think the sacred things are just talking about the plan of God. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Right. The sacred things are the plan of God, the things we may not know. In time we sit. He's revealed his will. You know, when it comes to knowing God's will, I think there's two things. You have God's decreed will and God's desired will. We're responsible for his desired or moral will. I am not responsible for his decreed will. Only he's responsible for that, and he knows that. In time, we will see that carried out. So that's his secret will. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there, I think he is revealing in that Deuteronomy 28 passage, it is part of the secret will that he reveals at that point. He will judge them. So, okay, good question. Okay, well, we'll see you all next week then.